Welcome everyone to another another episode of the um, Private Company Strategies podcast, uh, hosted by myself, Bill D'Angelo, a corporate partner in the Los Angeles office of Aaron Fox, and Adam Diederich, a uh, litigation partner in the Chicago office. Uh, and we are joined today with our partner, Kevin Matz. Welcome, Kevin, to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to have you. Um, so, Kevin, today uh, our topic is hot topics in estate planning for owners of private companies. So let's kick it off. What what are the hot topics in, in, in estate planning for private companies? Well, you know what? I, I think it comes down to maybe a core four. Okay. Four basic ones. And that's what I'm going to focus on during our podcast today. So number one, we live in a time of an increase in exclusion amount. And it has an effect on estate planning. I'm talking about exemption amount, exclusion amount for federal estate gift, and then also generation skipping transfer tax purposes. Okay. And But that is finite. That's not going to be with us forever because that is scheduled. There's a sunset on that, an expiration date of December 31, 2025, after which the exemption amount shrinks in half. So that creates a lot of planning opportunity that, that exists now that based on law in the books, as passed by Congress, will no longer exist once we get to 2026, less than three years from now. We also, also very, very hot is, well, it's not just a matter of making gifts and using up exemptions. There are lots of strategies in our toolkit as estate planners okay. for owners of private companies uh, that can be used. And one of them is, is that I'll talk about is a strategy called a grant to retain annuity trust. Basically, it's a device that was created and blessed by Congress way back in 1990. And we all thought, well, this is a very, very safe device, very safe technique. But the IRS has had some different thoughts on that. And we'll talk about that, too. Okay. And then also overarching on everything. Uh, and this is going to be a big issue as we get towards the end of the year into 2024. We have the Corporate Transparency Act. Uh, that is good. That has been talked about. We now have final regulations. Come January twenty twenty, January one twenty twenty four, it becomes live, and we need to advise our clients, especially owners of, of private companies, in dealing with that. Okay, great, great. Well, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, Adam, do you have any thoughts, or should we just dive in? Let's start with topic one. Let's start with topic one. Perfect, Kevin. Let's dive in. Okay. All right. So as I mentioned, we live in a time of an historically large exemption amount. It's called exclusion amount for estate tax purposes. That's what wealth you can pass gratuitously when you die. Gift tax purposes, that's wealth you can transfer gratuitously. Think in terms of a gift to children, other family members, could also be a spouse, but usually you get a deduction there, and, and that can pass completely free of having to have gift tax. And then also, when wealth passes down more than one generation, think in terms of making a gift, making a transfer, not to children, not to spouse, not the same generation, generation below, but two generations down to a grandchildren or a trust for grandchildren, that's the generation could be transfer tax. Right now, we're at a historically high level. It's 12920000 That is a significant increase, by the way, just because of cost of living inflation adjustments over the past year of where it was last year. 2022 is $12,060,000. Here in 2023, it's $12,920,000. For a married couple. Yeah, it's a huge in inflation adjustment. Um, 
yeah. for those for those listeners who are not as familiar um, with the death tax exclusions and the and the um, the amounts, how does how does the death tax work functionally? So it is basically a balance sheet of what you're owned or deemed to own at the time that you die. And if the amount of wealth is above an exemption level, you're potentially subject to not just filing return, but having to pay estate tax, taking into account deductions that you get. And right now, that level is a historically high level, um, $12,920,000, which means for a married couple with so-called portability concepts that apply at the federal estate and gift tax level, um, you can effectively double that to nearly $26 million. Wow. Okay. So- and there's a similar principle that applies for not just a death, but on a unified basis for lifetime transfers. So if I had, my wife and I had $26 million nearly to pass to our children and trust for our children and grandchildren and so on and so forth. Don't have any grandchildren yet, but <laughs> just that's, that's the thought or my clients, you know, they do. Uh, in that case, we can do that without paying any estate tax, federal estate tax whatsoever. Now, one wrinkle on that, I will say, you, it's not just federal estate tax that you have to be state. concerned about or gifts, but you have to consider states. And that varies from state to state, uh, from the great state of New York, the Empire State, and there's a much lower level there. It's $6,580,000 in New York. And also the so-called portability concept that allows you to effectively stack exemptions between spouses right. does not apply for New York. So you actually have to affirmatively apply using effectively trust to be able to soak up the exemption the first spouse to die, or otherwise you get very nasty tax consequences. Different states have different rules. Kevin, do people sometimes fail to pay attention to those the state differing levels and the different returns you have to file? Is that is that something you see often in your practice? Yeah, I, I, I do see that. I see some, quite often you, you see plans that would ignore the state and let's say, okay, let's just pass the amount to a credit shelter trust, the amount that soaks up the federal estate tax exemption, completely ignoring state. And that works for federal purposes, but you're running into a, in, into a, a landmine for state estate tax purposes, which means that you can have estate taxes due on the first spouse's death uh, due to a plan that doesn't take that into account for state estate tax purposes, including New York. And New York could be very onerous because New York has this very nasty feature of its law. It's called an estate tax cliff that says you get the benefit of a tax-free zone, $6,580,000 here in 2023. Once you go above that, we are going to start to tax you not on the increment above that, but rather from dollar one. Wow. You get five percent above that, and you're and you have a one dollar one dollar net taxable state uh, uh, taking account deductions, and you're taxed from dollar one. You get up to sixteen percent in New York. It's very serious stuff, not to be ignored. Unfortunately, I see quite often plans prepared by other firms. Sometimes that's done. Quite often it's done right, but sometimes that's done without focusing on that. That's very interesting. Do they, is a state like New York or a state like California, are they aggressive in terms of collections and going after? Because you're saying like if you go over the dollar threshold, you're now taxable on the full amount. That seems really onerous, Kevin. New York is very aggressive. Yeah. Very aggressive. And here's the thing, though, Bill. Um, you have to think from a tax policy standpoint. This is, a, this is, in some ways, an optional tax. We're not talking about moving outside of the United States and trying to expatriate and giving up citizenship. 
we're talking about in New York, you can move to New Jersey, which doesn't have an estate tax. It has an inheritance tax, but as long as wealth stays but you know, in the immediate family in terms of spouse and also children, grandchildren, also then charities, you completely avoid any estate tax just by moving so-called across the river to wow. New Jersey. Connecticut has an estate tax. It also has a gift tax, by the way, but it doesn't have those same nasty features of the cliff and the Connecticut estate tax is that it has, has a much higher exemption than New York. So it's unfortunately the tax policy makers in, in Albany, which is New York State's capital, aren't always cognizant of that. I'm involved quite a bit with advocacy through various groups, New York State Bar Association, New York State Society of CPAs, also at the federal level, but more focused on New York. We bring this to, to their attention. And unfortunately, it has not, they have not paid heed to it yet. Wow. That, that's Kevin, super. I'm sorry, Adam, go ahead. Sure. Uh, what does it mean to move to New Jersey? Would it be sufficient to just re- rent an apartment and, and, and list that as, as my new address if I'm trying to avoid this, this New York cliff? Or do I have to do some more careful planning? Well, you know what? It's based on domicile. Residence is based on domicile for estate tax purposes. So that means not just that you buy a second home there and you visit it and and take the position, but you actually establish that as a place that your folk that 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 becomes your center of operations, your personal affairs. You get a driver's license, perhaps change that over to New Jersey. You vote should vote in New Jersey. That should be the primary place of a vote. Um, if preferably you should not have a second house in New York, it can also create <laughs> potential income tax standpoints, uh, income tax issues uh, from that standpoint. Uh, there was a recent case that was helpful, the Obis case, that, that dealt with that as to when you have a primary place of a vote for income tax purposes, not estate tax purposes. But New York tries to collect its money. And unfortunately, the tax policies that have been enacted um, are quite often driving folks out of New York State. They don't have to go down to Florida. They can just simply move down to New Jersey and and, and avoid estate tax on that basis. Hmm. And since we're focused on uh, owners of, of closely held businesses, owners of private companies, how does the, the location of, of a business's owner's business uh, play into that calculation? Well, Good question, Adam. So the focus here is upon the individual who's the owner. So even if they have a Manhattan or Brooklyn address or somewhere in New York State, if the actual person who's dying or making the gift, making the gratuitous transfer is not a resident of New York State, but a resident of some other state, and they hold them out themselves out that way on an objective basis, they meet those standards. You also want to do it for income tax purposes to be consistent with that. Be you don't do not want to have 183 days in New York State. Uh, that that otherwise is going to be is going to resound as being problematic, not just for income tax purposes, but also for estate tax purposes. But if you do that, even though these center of operations could be in New York or some other state. If you reside elsewhere and all your connections that or the, the bulk of your connections, including for your vote, relative licenses, religious affiliations and organizations, do you go to church or synagogue in locally in New Jersey or do you happen to still be go, go to New York? Things, things like that. If all the indicia of domicile and where you reside and tend to reside is in that other state, you should be good. But again, as you point out, that requires planning and not just window dressing. Right. If you try window dressing, the tax authorities are too sophisticated. They will, you know, in the income tax context, 
uh, they will quite often audit by saying, well, show us all your your um, banking records and credit card statements. You can see where, where the credit cards are used. You're, you're picking up your dry cleaning in New York, not New Jersey. That's, that's not consistent with residing in New Jersey. And and now, of course, um, you know, they could actually subpoena telephone records and, and figure out where the phone, phone calls are going to and from. Um, so that's something that you want to plan and heed advice on, but it is very possible to engineer. Wow. Well, I know, I know, Kevin, we've, we've digressed from the outline. Um, and I, and I know that this has been a really good organic conversation. Um, how about we get back to where we are on, on your list of topics and what you want to discuss? What do we want to talk about grats, um, in detail? What, how do we want to approach that? Yeah. So before we do that, just one more thing about this exclusion amount, which again is at the all-time high level, twelve million nine twenty married couple. You double, you double that. It's nearly twenty-six million. It'll top twenty-six million with index income next year in twenty twenty-four. That has an expiration date, and that expiration date, under the law that was enacted in twenty seventeen of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, is December thirty-one, twenty twenty-five. Wow! Once we get to January one, twenty twenty-six, you don't have that exemption unless. Congress acts further. Again, we don't know. I like to think I have a crystal ball, but unfortunately, it's rather foggy, you know, uh, as far as how it works. We don't know what's going to happen in the 2024 election. You know, with elections and stuff, it, it, you try to predict it uh, as best you can, but all you can do is handicap it and see, be prepared for the outcomes. Uh, we had a situation, of course, after the 2020 election that we, you know, the Democrats had complete control not only of Oval Office but also effectively both houses of Congress, they could not get anything passed yeah. significantly. And that's no longer the case. Now we have a divided Congress between the House, House of Representatives and the Senate. So we're not going to see any significant changes in the, in the laws that affect a state gift or generous gift transfer tax in the next couple of years. But again, we do have somewhat of a cliff here. December 31, 2025, the exemption that currently exists, which is, a $10 million base as index for inflation, and again, effectively double that for a married couple, that gets sliced in half. Wow. Come January 1, 2026. And IRS guidance that's come out or U.S. Department of Treasury regulations that have come out make clear that there is actually a use it or, or, or lose it type analysis that applies here as far as using that exemption. This di- directly impacts owners of interest in private businesses that are successful. They can utilize the full twelve million nine twenty, nearly twenty six million between spouses on a quote unquote gift splitting type basis that could could be done through twenty twenty end of twenty twenty five. And if they were to die in twenty twenty six at a time that the exemption was lower, what the rules say is unless you have some sort of string provision that applies or recapture type event, which is which can be engineered around with careful planning, you don't have effectively a deferred estate tax or gift tax that applies. You don't have a clawback of it. However, in contrast to that, the rules are very clear that let's say you use some of the exemption, but not all. Maybe you make a $5 million gift right now thinking I'm doing a solid by my wife and kids or husband and kids and grandchildren and so on and so forth. We'll do it. We'll do it in trust. I'll have more exemption available. However, come 2026, that exemption available, instead of being the difference between, say, 12 million and 5 million, may only be the difference between 7 million and 5 million, depending on indexing at that time. You effectively lose the exemption by not lose, 
I'm sorry, you lose the exemption, but not using all of it. So again, it's more complicated than that in real life. You never want to give away more than you feel comfortable giving away. Right. That being said, there's lots that we can do that's in our toolkit. You could have a trust set up in which a spouse is a beneficiary together with kids and grandkids. Sometimes we call that a spousal lifetime access trust. You could have retained powers that are that the IRS has ruled is not problematic for estate tax purposes. So in addition to having a spouse as a beneficiary, which means you could transfer a residence there and continue to live there because you're able to live there as long as the spouse is living there because that's just how it is. You know, um, you could also have the spouse have access to it as a beneficiary for, for securities or interests in businesses that are transferred. And that's not problematic. Uh, again, what could be problematic is what, are the spouse, what if one, one spouse were to get divorced? What if the spouse were to die? Then, of course, that backdoor valve is then turned off. But there still will be triggers that sophisticated estate planning that will maintain. So someone could say, well, you know what? I'll transfer this instance in the private company that I have right now. And I feel good with that, and maybe because it's 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 a lack of control. It's an interest that is is not a controlling interest, and there's not a ready market. You get discounts on it for lack of control, lack of marketability. Instead of being worth a hundred cents in the dollar, is worth close. Or an appraiser would say maybe it's worth closer to sixty-five cents of thereabouts mm-hmm. in the dollar. You feel good about that, but what if I ever want that back? You could retain certain powers, a swap power, get that back, substitute value. Based upon fair market value at that time, you'd have to have and you'd have to have a trustee look at it, make sure it's fair market value at the time. You'd, for a closely held business interest, you'd always have to have an appraisal done, you know, to, to support that. But that would be a way to get assets back. You transfer liquid assets. You say, what if I need access to those liquid assets? What if, what if, if for some, I have a dark day. I, you know, I'm sued, and all of a sudden I have nothing. You could actually transfer in again. A trustee has to be the umpire on it. And it's preferable to have it as an independent trustee, someone who's not a family member or works for you, but you transfer it in a promissory note and you take back cash or liquid assets. There's a lot that you could engineer and do that. Now, moving moving over to the next item that we plan to talk about, listed, what is a grant or retained annuity trust and how does that fix into the panoply? So we talked about making gifts and gifts are wonderful, but here's some of the concerns with gifts. Well, let's say you make all the gifts that that I talked about. You've now used up exemption. And then the client comes to me and says, well, okay, I'm really into estate planning. And I have the ability that I feel comfortable doing it. Maybe it's someone worth $150, $200 million or north of that. And they can go ahead, but I've used up my exemption. And I've even used up the $860,000, maybe even multiply that by two with gift splitting one spouse during the year. Is there something else that I can do? Well, you can do lots of different things. Number one, before I get to grants, you can actually sell assets to that trust, take back a promissory note. Usually it's structured, almost always it's structured as being a so-called grantor trust for income tax purposes. The magic of that is that it's an irrevocable trust, but it's a grantor trust, so you sell assets to it. Appreciation above the interest rate in the promissory notes grows outside of your taxable state, outside the so-called, I like images, outside of the so-called proverbial tax fence. But the, we said, well, what about the t- tax friction? I'm selling to a trust. Isn't that a tax? Doesn't that generate capital gain? 
when I take get interest on the promissory note, isn't that interest income to me? The answer is no. Wow. Because the IRS ruled that because it's a grantor trust for income tax purposes, it's one in the trade, the same as me, the grantor, even though it's the other side of the tax fence and all grows for the benefit of my family. So that's one technique. And you can use valuation clauses that are designed to, to mitigate risk. And the IRS says that, well, you are saying that you're selling $30 million worth. We think it's worth $100 million. You know, there are techniques there. Another technique that, that potentially works well, but there is a lot to manage, is a graduate retain annuity trust. Again, the thought here is someone has used up their exemption, or they could have very hard to value assets and are very concerned that the IRS will come in and say that this asset you think that's worth $30 million that you're selling or interest in the, in the private company worth $30 million, it's in fact worth $100 million. Right. That's $70 million differential. That is subject to gift tax at 40%, pay up $28 million plus interest and penalties. That would be a bad day. How can we protect against that? Well, one of the techniques in our toolkit to protect against that is instead, okay, instead of having, instead of doing it as a gift or a sale, we'll transfer to the special type of trust that the that Congress has created under the section 2702 of the Internal Revenue Code. Won't mention too many code sections, but that's what I'll mention. 2702 and the Treasury regulations have elaborated upon that says that if you follow all these techniques here. You can transfer assets to it, take back an annuity that's equal, roughly equal to what you've transferred to it, and there's no have a built-in IRS benchmark, benchmark interest rate and have close to zero, zero or close to zero. If, if this were if this were a, a video cast, you'd see me holding up my, my hand, everyone, uh, reflecting a zero or something close to a zero. It's actually, usually you have a little bit of holding my, my fingers just a little bit apart right now just a smidgen but, but kevin there there are there are some challenges and problems with grantor retained annuity trusts what what are they what 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 makes well, this a a great technique and also one that has some risk yeah so it used to be that people would say no risk whatsoever. You transfer it because one of the features of it is a built-in revaluation clause. So if the IRS says it's not worth $30 million, but it's worth $100 million, pay up the differential, $70 million gift. There's a built-in feature under the Treasury regulations that says that if the IRS adjusts the annuity amount, you then get back an annuity not worth $30 million, but worth $100 million. So there's still effectively no or just a de minimis amount of gift. The change in the last two to three years you're referring to, Bill, is the IRS has, has come in and said, hold on a second. We're going to take a look at what you're doing here because we want to make sure that you're not being too fast and loose in your planning and are whipsawing us, us being the IRS. Right. And that if you're not proceeding with the spirit of these rules, even if you're technically following them, but if you're basically whipsawing the IRS on defective valuations, we're not going to treat the grad as being a qualifying grad. We're going to say this $100 million transfer that you put in, you don't get back $100 million of annuity as a qualified annuity interest. You're getting back, we're going to say you get back zero, which means not just a $70 million gift in between $100 million and $30 million. We're going to say gift tax on $100 million, top rate 40%. Very, very bad day for the taxpayer. Very, very bad day. And the IRS has, has had two challenges. Now, one, they actually was a litigated case. We dropped last year 
But the one that really has bad facts, and you know what they say, bad facts make bad law. <laughs> and I'm just going you know, and I'm just going to elaborate on a little bit because I think it tells a story as far as what not to do. So this was this was um, there was a chief counsel advice. That's basically the IRS's chief counsel's opinion as far as what they think the law is, and they they provided to the taxpayer who's involved, who's requested that, or quite often arise in the context of an audit. It could be requested also from the IRS attorney who's auditing it uh, in the context of a gift tax audit. And they put it out there because not only does it have an effect upon the matter at issue, which again could be litigated. I understand this is right now uh, in, in in context of a tax court litigation, but but still in the system. So we don't know what the outcome is ultimately going to be. It you know may well settle. We may never know the outcome, but it's out there. But because they published it, it's like this big you know warning that's out there, sort of like saying this is poison. You don't do this. You know one of the things you don't do. So it was. Uh, uh, Chief Counsel Advice, just so so it's in, in the notes, uh, 2021 52018, was, was published at the very end of 2021, came to the attention of folks soon thereafter. And what happened there is you had someone who was the owner of a private company, interested mm. in a private company. And it was a very successful company and was working with an investment advisory firm. And uh, he was soliciting offers for a merger and received five such offers. And, uh, you know, and, you know, receiving those offers, he said, okay, I think we're going to have a big growth event in value. And what makes Gratz work is growth in value above the benchmark IRS interest rate. Time of writing this, time of recording this is about 5%. It changes from five from, from month to month, that benchmark interest rate. But if you, let's say you grow not just 5%, but you grow 50%. That 45% delta, that differential, all grows tax-free, the other side of the tax fence, for the benefit of the beneficiaries. Usually it's a trust structure for the benefit of beneficiaries, um, and which could also include a spouse, children, uh, and, and, and the like, and so on and so forth. So, you know, he said, well, I have a valuation arbitrage right here. Mm -hmm. You know, I have my private company here. We're soliciting offers. I have five tender offers that, that have come come through. So I'm going to transfer assets to the grad because I'm, I think that it's going to be a built-in arbitrage. And then for value in the gift tax return, he says, well, how shall I value it? What will produce the most value for my family in a trust for their benefit? Well, what I'll do is I've got this old appraisal that was done December 31 the prior year for section 409A deferred compensation purposes. That was a lot lower. Right. Let's use that. It's not that old. It's six or seven months old. And of course, it was a third of the value that was reflected in the tender offer. So he went ahead and, and, and did that. And the IRS, you know, got wind of that and they weren't amused. <laughs> uh, the, they were not amused. And, you know, here's the thing. The facts, those facts don't sound good, right? No. They get worse because the same time he was doing that roughly, he said, oh, well, I got a wonderful opportunity to use a split interest charitable trust that qualifies for a charitable deduction, a charitable remainder trust, and I'm going to transfer the stock for the tender offer purposes, get a big tax deduction here around the same time. And what did he use for that? Again, did he use the old the old and cold valuation for 409A purposes that he used for the GRAT for gift tax purposes? No. What he instead used was a new curd valuation taking into account the tender offers. Um, 
and to get a why would he do that? To get a big charitable deduction. So he's whipsawing the IRS. Yeah. And again, the IRS, you know, you could just read the, this. It's a worthwhile read. This this chief counsel advice. Again, the IRS says, you know what? Here are the basic principles of fair market value. You consider what people would pay uh, based upon willing buyer, willing sell without any compulsion to sell. Time of sale, you can consider outside information if it's relevant, including including in a business combination context. But what you can't do is basically have something that is lacking good faith, tantamount to a fraud on the IRS. You can't whipsaw the IRS. You can't use values that are stale. Use it for one purpose, for charitable deduction purposes. Get a big charitable deduction. But by the same token, for gift tax purposes, using this grant, this congressionally uh, blessed technique, uh, you 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 can't do that and try and, and try to whipsaw the IRS. So what they said is, we're going to consider this as not being a qualified annuity interest. You may have had a properly drafted grant; it may have been a beautiful trust instrument, but because you did not respect the bona fides of it. We're not going to respect it either. This qualified interest is unqualified wow. or disqualified. And when you have a non-qualified interest under the rules that apply here, you get a zero value for the nudity coming back, which means you transfer $100 million, you get zero coming back, even though you have something coming back from the terms of the trust instrument. That's a $100 million gift under that analysis. Not a good day. And some language is basically, they saw this as a deliberate attempt to whip, whipsaw the Whipsaw the IRS. This is not something you want to do. Not something to try at home or anywhere else. Right. Uh, with in a private company. So very, very vital. And this is this is the big red flag warning that the IRS has has basically put out there. So Kevin, I'm trying to put a bookend on our discussion uh, this morning. What are some summary thoughts that that we could have on the um, exclusion amount, the grats? What's 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 the what's the big takeaway for a client or for another lawyer in our firm that is trying to help um, their clients that have private companies? What's the, what's the probably the biggest takeaway on this topic? Bill, I, I'd say the biggest takeaway is that you have an op- is that owners of private businesses, wealthy individuals, have an opportunity to act now because there's a there is a historically high exemption amount that's scheduled to sunset to half that level after December 31 2025 with the IRS in in guidance in regulations saying that if you go ahead use it all right now and do it in the right way advised by by trusted states private client lawyers and like do it in the right way you don't have any retained strings you can get it outside of your taxable state and not have any risk of clawback whatsoever. But in planning, it's very, very important that you be mindful of some of the recent guidance that's come out. There's even more than what I've discussed. I've just had some of the highlights in the grad area. You know, be respectful of one's transaction. You know, make sure that 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 you're mindful, that one is mindful that there's going to be another audience there right. and that audience is internal revenue service and you have to be and you have to be aware of how that's going to be how that's going to present itself and whether or not they will take kindly to it or whether or not they may be affronted by it as they were in that recent chief counsel advice right right well i think that's a good place for us to end 
Kevin and Adam. Um, thank you everyone for listening to this podcast. Um, we are going to do a part two with Kevin uh, and it will be released shortly after. And we uh, look forward to your comments and continued support. Thank you very much.